0: Uh, and we're to hear about people is what kind of music they like. Uh, I like both kinds of music. I like country and Western. And uh, <laughs> one of my favorite country songs or one song that I really like, it's kind of a tearjerker, uh, was what's famous in 1999. And it's called The Chain of Love by Clay Walker. Any of you heard of this song, Chain of Love? All right, we only have one sanctified person, two, three. All right, good. It goes like this, and I'm going to try not to sing it because I don't want you to get up and leave. Yeah, can I get an amen? All right. says, he was driving home one evening in his beat-up Pontiac. When an old lady flagged him down, her Mercedes had a flat. He could see that she was frightened, standing out there in the snow, till he said, I'm here to help you, ma'am. By the way, my name is Joe. She said, I'm from St. Louis, and I'm only passing through I must have seen a hundred cars go by. This is awful nice of you. When he changed the tire and closed her trunk and was about to drive away, she said, how much do I owe you? Here's what he had to say. You don't owe me a thing. I've been there too. Someone once helped me out just the way I'm helping you. If you really want to pay me back, here's what you do. Don't let this chain of love end with you. Well, a few miles down the road, the lady saw a small cafe. She went in to grab a bite to eat and then be on her way. But she couldn't help but notice how the waitress smiled so sweet and how she must have been eight months along and dead on her feet. And though she didn't know her story, and she probably never will, when the waitress went to get her change from a $100 bill, the lady slipped right out the door and on a napkin left a note. There were tears in the waitress' eyes as she read what she wrote. It read this, you don't owe me a thing. I've been there too. Someone once helped me out just the way I'm helping you. If you really want to pay me back, here's what you do. Don't let the chain of love end with you. I read that story because it's very similar to Abram's story that we will see. You see, this woman received grace and love from a stranger. And because of that, her heart was transformed and she showed grace and love to another stranger, to the waitress. Abram has seen and experienced the grace and love of God, and it transforms his heart to show grace and love to others. That's what we're going to look at today. You may remember the story of Abram so far. We'll briefly walk through it again. Abram started out right here in Ur, and he was a part of a pagan family that worshiped idols, not the true living God, but dead idols. And God, through his grace and love, called out to Abram and said, come, follow me. I want a relationship with you. I want to bless you. And so he said, follow me to a land that you do not know. So Abram followed God from Ur all the way up into Haran, but then he got stuck there for some reason. I don't know if he was stubborn or if he'd lost faith or what it was, but he settled in Haran against God's will. But the Lord continued to show grace and love to Abram. And he said, come on, keep following me, follow me to the promised land. Follow to the land that I want to bless you. And so Abram goes from Haran down into the promised land. And he settles there for a while. But then a drought hits the promised land. And Abram loses faith again. And he runs away from God. And he runs down to Egypt where it's fertile. That's why it's green, because it's fertile. And there he can get all the food he wants, he thinks. But he runs away from God. And then he ends up selling his wife, prostituting his wife for financial gain and for safety. And so he rebels against God again. And once once again, through his grace and love, God pursues Abram. He confronts him through Pharaoh. He actually curses Pharaoh, sending plagues on Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh is the mouthpiece of God rebuking him. What are you doing selling your wife? Don't you know that that's wrong? Why did you tell me she's your sister when she's your wife? And then God escorts them back into the promised land through The men of Pharaoh and they come back into the promised land and Abram returns to a place of worship, to a place of intimacy with God because of his never giving up always and forever persistent love to a rebel sinner. And you see that Abram's heart is transformed by this. And we saw it last week or two weeks ago in 13 as he worships God and his priorities are set straight. But we also see here in Genesis 14 today. So if you would read along with me, Genesis chapter 14, uh, I will warn you, this is probably the most difficult passage for me to read because of the names. And so your guess is good as mine. Genesis chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elessar, Lamur, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, These kings were were made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, uh, Shemabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlamur, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlamur... And the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoth-Karnaim, the the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in shavakith Why is no one just named Joe? You know, I mean... (laughs) And the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El-Paran... On the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Alright, so you guys have that all figured out, right? You understand what that means? No. We'll go through it. Don't worry. I'll simplify. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zebuim, and the king of Belta, that is Zor, went out and they journeyed, they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, that is tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. All right, this is scene two. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, "'Brother of Eshcol and of Aner, these were allies of Abram. "'When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, "'he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, "'and went in pursuit as far as Dan. "'And he divided his forces against them by night. "'He and his servants and defeated them "'and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. "'Then he brought back all the possessions,' and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the woman and the people. Scene 3. After his return from the defeat of Chetelamur and the king who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray. God, this is your holy inspired word. And it is the message of it is so much better than anything we could possibly imagine or fathom. God, your grace saturates the scriptures, Lord. God, pray that we would see that this day and that we would be transformed by your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today, through this story, we will see how Abram is transformed by the grace of God, how the grace of God has completely changed the way that he looks at the world. And we're going to look in that in a few different ways. Let's start by looking how Abram's heart is transformed by the grace of God to pursue the rebellious. You may remember in Genesis 13, which uh, we studied two weeks ago, Abram and Lot got together. And Lot was Abram's nephew. And God had blessed them so richly that they had so many men and so many herds that they couldn't dwell together in the same land. And so Abram said, hey, I will give you your pick of the promised land. Do you want to go to the right or to the left? And I think we actually have it up here. And so Abram and Lot were right here. And Abram said, do you want to go right or do you want to go left? And Lot said, no, no. I want to go this way into the Jordan Valley. I want to go outside of the promised land. I want to go against where God wants me to go because I see riches there. I see worldly riches. The people have it so good. That's where I want to go. And so he rebelled against God. And he ran into this foreign land to receive riches. Okay? Okay. While he is there, war breaks out. And this is where I'll kind of walk you through that whole confusing verse, 12 verses. In, in the north here, uh, up above here, there are kings from Mesopotamia, from the north. Uh, there are four kings, and they actually had uh, dominion over this area east of the Jordan. All right, They had it for 12 years, which means probably that they paid taxes to the kings. The kings protected them. Uh, they promised not to invade them. Well, after 12 years, they rebelled. They probably stopped paying taxes or something of that sort. And so the 13th year, they were free. But the 14th year, the king from the north decided to come down and reestablish their authority. And so they came from up above here, and they came down, and they fought here and won. 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 They even came down here to fight, and they won. Now, they had this amazing victory going, right? Uh, they were undefeated. And so as they were heading back, they were coming back through here, also winning wars. And as they came back here to the Valley of Siddam, which is the Salt Sea, there was a epic battle. Uh, and on the one side is the kings from the north, the four kings from the north. And on the other side are five local kings. And this is kind of what this indicates here. They're all from right in this area. And among them are Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they have this epic battle. And the four kings defeat The five local kings and the five local kings flee. They fall into tar pits. They run into the hills, whatever it might be. Okay, and as the kings flee this way, someone escapes and comes and tells Abram that Lot has been captured. See, when they defeated the kings, it left their cities open to be plundered. And so they went into Sodom and they plundered it and they took Lot and his people and his riches. And they started to head home and Abram started to pursue Now, let's think about this for a little bit, because if I'm Abram and my knucklehead nephew says, I'm not staying in the promised land, man, I know better than God. I'm running to this foreign land to receive the riches of the world. And someone comes to you and said, Lot and his possessions have been captured. How would you respond You know, I'd be tempted to respond, you know what, Lot is getting what he deserves, right? He never should have run away from God. He should have stayed in the promised land. He was chasing after worldly riches. Now he's getting what's coming to him, right? That's maybe how we would respond. But see how Abram responds. Look at verse 14. Says, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, And went in pursuit as far as dan now a couple things first off he has 318 trained men that's just the trained men god has tremendously blessed abram he's never had a child and yet he has all these people working for him 318 of them are men trained for war but the second thing is he goes after this military force that is undefeated As far as we know, Abram has never been to war in his life, right? So this is like the undefeated Packers against the Colts or something like that, or the Bad News Bears, right? They're like, we're going to go, we're going to take him on, we're going to get Lot, and we're going to bring him back, all right? And so they pursue them. Verse 15, it says, And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. And so here you have this amazing victory. But as we read this story, the question should come to mind. Why in the world would Abram do this? Why would he rally all his troops? Why would he leave the comforts of his own home? Why would he jeopardize his own riches, even spend his own riches To go after his knucklehead nephew Lot. Why would he do it? And I think the answer is found in Genesis chapter 12. If you remember, Abram was that knucklehead. Abram was that rebellious one who ran to Egypt. Who ran away from God. And how did God respond? God did not say, you know what? You deserve what you get. So long. See you later. No. God pursued him as a rebellious sinner and brought him back to himself. He showed grace and love to Abram while he was rebelling against him in Egypt. And because of that experience, Abram, transformed by the grace of God, said, I will go and pursue this knucklehead, rebellious nephew Lot because God pursued me. couple months ago i was at a big brother's big sister's benefit and while i was there this this very successful looking businessman gets up and he brings his little brother up and starts to share about this great relationship how he spends all this time with this kid and really loves him and cares for him and takes care of him and how he enjoys him the kid has some disabilities and so there's complications to doing that but it's his joy to serve this kid and to love this kid And you're sitting there thinking, why would he take time out of his busy schedule to do this? And he goes on and shares the story of how when he was a little kid, he had a big brother who loved him and who cared for him and who pursued him. You see, he could love and pursue this kid because he had been loved and pursued himself. In the same way, we can love and pursue difficult people. Have you ever had difficult people in your life? I mean, you just got back from Thanksgiving, right? And, uh... You know, as much as we love family, they're always dysfunctional, right? And uh, they're not always easy. I know this myself. I struggle to love people in my family well. I struggle to love people that I think are very, very difficult. And so the question is, how could we possibly love difficult people? Well, it's seen here in Abram. The only way we can love difficult people and pursue difficult people is knowing that God has pursued difficult me that he has never given up on me, that he has pursued me in the midst of my rebellion, loving me and bringing me back to himself. And so you see, Abram is transformed by God's grace and God's love to pursue the rebellious because God had pursued rebellious Abram. We also see his heart is transformed. Not only does he pursue the rebellious, he also rejects the wicked. In verse 17, we read about how uh, the king of Sodom and the king of uh, the king of Salem come out to meet him in the king's valley. That is an area just to the west of Jerusalem. And so it's right in this area in here. And so these kings come out to meet him. The king of Sodom came out of the tar pits or he came out of the hills, wherever he fled to when he was defeated by those kings from the north. And he comes out and he says this to Abram. Look in verse 21 with me. It says, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, the plunder belonged to Abram. Uh, The king of Sodom lost it, you know, and, and Abram won it. And so it all belonged to Abram. But he's trying to strike a deal. Hey, you get the money, you give me the people, and we'll all go on our merry way. Verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Now, why did Abram take a vow before God that he would not take anything from Sodom? You know, his, his nephew Lot had no problem doing that. He actually lived in Sodom. But Abram said, I will not do it. Why is that? Because Sodom was built On wickedness. Sodom was built on the riches of wickedness. And Abram said, I want no part in that. God has promised to bless me tremendously, but I'm not going to take matters into my own hands to secure that. I'm not going to do it in a way opposed to the ways of God. I'm going to trust that I will do it in the ways of God. You see, Abram was not willing to trade the riches of the wicked for the glory of God. He wasn't willing to trade the riches of the wicked for the glory of God. He said, you can keep your money because I don't want to be blessed that way. I want to be blessed the way that God has chosen to bless me. He wouldn't compromise with this wicked king. He wanted to to get God's blessing God's way. There's a story of a man named Truett Cathy. Many of you may know who this is. He's the founder of the best chicken restaurant in the world named Chick-fil-A. Uh, have, who here has eaten Chick-fil-A? Wow, that's pretty good. It's a southern chain. Uh, you get an awesome chicken sandwich, and then you get these great waffle fries and sweet tea, and it's a fantastic meal. But he, he founded this company named Chick-fil-A, and uh, he made a commitment, like Abram, to obey God above all else, to obey God even above rationale. You see, the most unique thing about Chick-fil-A is that it's actually closed on Sundays, And the reason that it's closed on Sundays is because the fourth commandment says very explicitly, it says this, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God on it. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughters or your male servants or your female servants or your livestock or the sojourners who is within your gates. And so it says you shall not work. You shall rest. You shall worship the Lord not to mention all the people that work for you shouldn't work on the Sabbath day either. Now he took this very literally. He took it at the price of risking a failed business. He took this at the price of being criticized by people saying, that is unwise. He even took it at the price of being criticized by Christians by saying, you're legalistic for following God's word. But he made the commitment that I want to do it God's way. No other way. God's way is the way that I'm going to find God's blessing. I will not pursue sin. I will pursue God and trust him. He actually says this. He says, our decision to close on Sundays was our way of honoring God and directing our attention to things more important than our business. If it took seven days to make a living with a restaurant, then we need to be in some other line of work. Through the years, I have never wavered from this position. This is an awesome step of faith. To believe that God will actually provide for you when you follow his will, when you follow his commands. This is what Abrams did. This is what this is what uh, Truett did. This is what God calls us to do, to desire and to honor and glorify God above all else. So how would this affect us? How would this affect maybe the way that we would reject certain business practices that are unethical but very profitable? Maybe we would look and see where our finances go when we're investing, make sure that those are not going to any unethical means. Or maybe it would even mean making our business close for a day of the week to follow God and to put him above all else. You see, this was what Abram wanted. This is what it meant to reject the wicked, is that he was going to get God's blessing, not through the world's ways, but through God's ways. And that's what he calls us to do. But it only happens if you live a life transformed by the love and grace of God. Finally, we see Abram's heart is so transformed by God's grace that he worships the Lord. Look at verse 18 with me. We have another king, not just the king of Sodom, but a king of Salem. It says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. All right, let's pause there for a minute because this is no average king. All right, Melchizedek. That's an understatement. See, he only gets three verses here, uh, really in the whole Bible. He only gets three verses as a person, but his legacy lives on throughout the scripture. You see, first off, you see here, and, and king, uh, king of Salem means king of peace. Salem was probably an abbreviation for Jerusalem. So this was the king of Jerusalem, all right, the king of peace. Melchizedek means he's a king of righteousness. Furthermore, he was not only a king, but he was a priest, before the priesthood was ever established in the Bible, and so he's kind of this mystical, magical figure in the Old Testament, and we'll see later how it kind of how he has uh, influence over the rest of scriptures. But this is no ordinary king; he is a king priest of Jerusalem, who is the king of peace and righteousness. And then he brings out bread and wine to Abram, verse nineteen, and he blessed him and said, "Blessed be Abram by God Most High." possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now Melchizedek prayed for God's blessing on Abram because of his courageous victory. But he also prays for a blessing on God or a praise to God for God's victory. And so the question is, who was victorious? Was Abram victorious or is God victorious? You know, it's kind of like whenever we, we do anything in life. If we have a good grade on a test, if we we have a good relationship with our wife or with our husband or with our kids, who gets the glory for that? Are we victorious or is God victorious for that? It's it's the tension that we face in our heart all the time. And I think of it like this. Many of you know my my son Caleb, who's four years old, loves to mow the lawn, okay? Absolutely loves it. Actually, when we put it away for the winter, he had a meltdown because we put away the lawnmower, all right? I hope it's like that at 16. We'll find out, all right? You can pray about that. So so we put it away, but Caleb loves to loves to mow the lawn with us. And the way it works is I have the big bar, you know, up top and the safety thing, so that if I let go it shuts off. And there's little handlebars down below, like halfway, so you can fold it. And Caleb will sit there and we'll mow the entire lawn together. Uh we'll mow the entire thing and afterwards. Usually he'll get a popsicle, he'll get some attaboys. And so Caleb mows the lawn, right? Now, here's the thing, is that I can mow the lawn without Caleb's participation, right? But Caleb could never mow the lawn without my participation. Don't tell him I said that. But Caleb could never do it without me right behind him, pushing the mower, providing the power, holding the safety switch. This is a picture of what it looks like to live victorious in God. We're on those little handlebars, but who's driving it? Who's pushing it? Who's providing the power for victory? See, we cannot win without God's participation, but God always wins without our participation. And so the glory goes to God, and they understand this. And Abram responds with worship. And how does he worship? Look at verse 20 with me. It says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's right. Abram worshiped with money. You see, God gives us money to worship him. Uh, We talked about this Two weeks ago, I believe, about how God gives us money to show us what we worship. He gives us money so that we can worship him with it. The king of Sodom and Lot, they worshipped treasure more than God. They treasured treasure more than God. But Abram was so transformed by the grace of God that Abram treasured God more than treasure. And Abram used his treasure to worship God and to glorify God. You see, when we give our tithes and offering, it is not just supporting the church. It is an act of worship, saying, God, we treasure you more than anything this world has to offer. Not to mention the plunder that we have gotten, the treasure we have gotten, is only because you have given it to us. We're the ones pushing that little handlebar, but you're behind us, and you have given us all that we have to worship you and to enjoy it for your glory. And so we see Abram's transformed by the grace of God to worship the Lord God. Now, question is for us. Have you been transformed by the amazing grace of God? Have you seen a change in your heart? Have you seen a change in your life because of God's grace towards you? You might say, you know, God really hasn't been that gracious to me. My life is pretty hard. This figure, Melchizedek, like I said, he has a legacy that lived on throughout the scriptures. You know, he's only given three verses here, but he is giving a lot more credit later on in Scripture. 2,000 years after Genesis 14 is written, a psalm is written by King David. And King David is prophesying about the King that is to come, the Messiah that is to come, the Savior that is to come. And he says this in Psalm 110, verse 4. He says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you, speaking about the future Messiah, the future Christ, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Strange. Just kind of out of nowhere. You will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. 2,000 years after he appears in Genesis 14. And then 2,000 years later, the Melchizedekian priest comes. Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That Christ has come. He is the fulfillment of the scripture. And it's talked about, at great length in Hebrews. And so I'll just pull out some parts, but really, if you want a fun study, just Google Melchizedek, see where it is in the Bible, and read those passages. He's a fascinating, mysterious figure in the Bible. But you see here, it says in Hebrews 5, verse 5, it says, "...so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son today." I have begotten you. So God appoints him and says, as he says, also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what does it mean that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek? Hebrews 7.1 tells us a little more. It says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, this is the story we just read, priest of the most high God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And him, Abram, appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the Melchizedekian order of priests. And in a few ways. First off, he's the fulfillment of a righteous king. He's the fulfillment of a king king of peace he's called the prince of peace but there's also something that's very very interesting in here throughout israel throughout the old testament it was not allowed for a man to be both priest and king he either needed to be one or the other in matter of fact some try to do it and it always ends poorly some one man becomes leprous the other man it leads to the downfall of his kingdom But there are two men throughout the entire scripture where the fact that he is both king and priest of Jerusalem is celebrated. Do you know who those two figures are? Melchizedek and Jesus. They are the righteous, the peace-giving king-priest that God has intended for us. See, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He shows us the Christ that is to come. The author of Hebrews goes on and talks about how the Levitical priesthood, that he instituted, is insufficient because they have to offer sacrifices for themselves and they have to offer sacrifices time and time and time again for our sin. And so he goes on and talks about how Jesus is the great high priest. Hebrews 7, 11 says, Now if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood for under the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did it once for all. And then here is the kicker. How did Jesus offer a sacrifice once and for all for all of our sin? when he offered up himself. You see, this is the amazing thing about Jesus. Jesus was not only the perfect priest, he was not only the perfect king, he was also the perfect prophet, but finally, Jesus was also the perfect sacrifice. For the first time in the history of the people of God, the priest came to sacrifice at the altar with nothing in his hand, no animals. And it's because Jesus, our great high priest, was the sacrifice on the altar of the cross where He died for your sins and for mine, once and for all, forever. That is God's grace towards us, God's love towards us, and it should transform our hearts. Let me end with this. I started with a song, I'll end with a song. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written in his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending a greater Melchizedek. Thank you for sending Jesus, the righteous king, the king of peace, the prince of peace, who would come... And give your ultimate display of love, greater than you gave to Abram, for us, God. Lord, I pray that we would follow you, not out of begrudging submission, but as those who have been transformed by the grace and love of our Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.